Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Please, please clap. <laughs> this is normally where I would say something witty, but I'm, I'm just going to forgo that for you guys here tonight. Hi guys, welcome to Barstool Politics. Uh, I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College, uh, Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College, and we have our original super guest, Dr. Suzanne Chad, with us. Hello. And our senior legal analyst slash my personal spirit animal, <laughs> Professor Tom Cavanaugh. Um, yeah, if you guys uh, haven't listened to us before or you're, you're new, we uh, kind of go through current events, uh, political events, obviously given the name, um, and you know, just kind of have fun with it, have uh, an engaging discussion, and also just kind of kind of riff and be able to, to see both sides of the issue and, and have fun with it. Um, so before that, we do uh, all the usual fun stuff. Um, we obviously have social media accounts. Follow us on Facebook at uh, Barstool Politics, uh, Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. We couldn't get Barstool Politics. I don't know who the hell has it, but I'm going to find him one day. Um, <laughs> Uh, beers that we try, which we're not trying tonight, uh, you can find on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics on there. Um, Tom helps us out with that pretty significantly, so I'm always appreciative of that. Um, and then the podcast itself, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, lots of podcasting platforms. Uh, we always appreciate reviews, uh, likes, shares, whatever the hell you do on your individual platforms. Um, Let's just get to it. Um, it's not a ton going on this week. I definitely didn't slow, spend slow nine hours days. today yeah. watching the TV and not working. Um, Bill, kind of give us a breakdown. Sure. We're going to talk about impeachment. We've got to talk about impeachment. That's going to be the big topic today. So we're going to start with the historic impeachment hearings with the, at the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, we're in the midst of a second, a busy second week. At least nine individuals will testify this week. Uh, Tuesday's testimony included Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vidman, the National Security Council's top Ukraine expert and decorated Army veteran. Jennifer Williams, a career Foreign Service officer, but more importantly, an aide to Vice President Mike Pence. And Kurt Volker, special envoy to Ukraine. But there's little doubt that the uh, week's biggest witness was Gordon Sondland, who testified today, uh, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. Uh, uh, Trump also, as expected, has used his Twitter to attack the process and the individuals testifying, although on Monday he did suggest that he would strongly consider providing written testimony to the inquiry. The hearings have allowed, allowed Democrats and Republicans to offer radically different interpretations of President Trump's actions in Ukraine. So, so much to break down. Suzanne, uh, why don't you start us off with your impressions of the hearing this week? 
Well, can I take a step back, though, quickly and say that I think that if he does provide written testimony, it should be what he wrote on the papers today <laughs> that we all saw, maybe saw pictures of, that when he went out to the press that said just, I want nothing, I did nothing, no quid pro quo in giant black letters. I think he should submit that to the committee, and then that we should. He said that was going to be the end. That's I mean, nothing the else end. after right, that. Right, yes. Yeah. So he should strongly and then, consider. And then he tweeted like two hours later. <laughs> right. So he should strongly consider putting that in the congressional record and calling it a day. Um, Okay, so where am I this week? Well, yesterday I was somewhere different than I am today because of the testimony this morning, but I think overall what I got out of both of the days is how everyone who was involved can see the same thing differently, which is not like we didn't know this before, people do this all the time, but between Vidman's testimony, Volcker's testimony, Morrison's testimony, and then Sondland's today, and Williams's as well, they're on the same call, they're doing the same thing, they're hearing the same things, but they're taking very different things out of it. So you hear Volcker and Morrison saying, there was really nothing wrong with the conversation. And then you hear Vidman saying that even though he wasn't on the call, or he was on the call, that he thought there was something incredibly problematic. And then Sondland today says, at the beginning, Yes, there was absolutely quid pro quo, this connection between a White House meeting and having the investigations. Yes, it was there, it was there. So, of course, the Republicans are trying to undermine Sondland's testimony because it says the things that their witnesses didn't say on Tuesday. But all in all, I think what's going to be challenging moving forward is how can you create a situation where you can convince everyone, even though the players saw it differently, that we should all think the same thing happened. I think that's going to be the challenge. It's going to be fascinating. That's, that's just a start, of course. Why don't we, we should throw it down to the other end, uh, and Tom, give your impressions of, of, of either the, uh, the today or the broader impeachment process. Yeah, the, uh, two things occur to me to say right off the bat. The first is, this is not a legal proceeding. We've said this on the podcast before, and as I've listened for these last couple of weeks, both the hearings this week and, and what led up to it, hearing people talking about hearsay and the Sixth Amendment and that sort of thing, uh, those won't even apply if there is an impeachment and there's a trial in the Senate. Uh, I think Democrats would be wise to use some of the principles from those things, but this is, this is not a legal proceeding where the Sixth Amendment applies or, or, or any of those sorts of things. I was struck by almost exactly the same thing you were, and, and that led me to think, where are we going to be in 15 years? Who's going to run for public office? Uh, how are we going to find people that are interested in putting themselves through the kinds of things that both sides are putting the other side through? And uh, how will democracy work if we have rendered Congress almost meaningless as it continues to do almost nothing but investigate and the presidency a thing that not the best of us would pursue because of what pursuing it means? Uh, that, I mean, for me, is the, is the really troubling it, thing. The billionaires pursue it. I don't know what <laughs> we're talking about. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. I, th I think that's a real worry, that we are driving the best of us out of politics uh, because no one wants their lives to look like this unless maybe in some ways they're the worst of us and they can tolerate all of this. I find that when I get here, Phil is taller than I thought he would be. <laughs> <laughs> and like me, he has a face for radio. <laughs> And this on that is, note, Phil, would you like to say something? Well, I've already talked about how these, wheel, these chairs have wheels, and I can just give a little shove if I get... Yeah. No, I mean, so this is... I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I go back to thinking about how so many people can see the same thing differently, but I also feel like they're all seeing the same thing. They're just twisting it in the way that they want it to be twisted. Right? Today, I, I mean, I didn't... I saw little bits and pieces. The Sondland testimony seems 
really damning, right? I mean, he, this is the, the, the guy who had brought, who had cast doubt over it in his original, you know, he's, he's the donor, right? He's the guy who gave millions of dollars, or a million dollars to the Trump administration. He's the one who's supposed to be the safe witness. And, and I, 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 what he came out today and said was not just that, yeah, there was a quid pro quo, but that they did it at the president's direction. Mm -hmm. And this is where I, I, I mean, I've said this on the podcast the last couple of weeks. The, we know what we know, right? The facts are established at this point, and it's really, to me, a debate about whether we care or whether it matters. And so, mm -hmm. it, it, to that extent, and that's where it's not a legal question, right? It's a political mm -hmm. question. But I also think um, the thing I thought of today, as I watched Sondland testify and change his tune, um, and take some heat for that, right? He, people were critical of him for that. The thing I thought of is that this is not a legal process, but there are legal issues hanging over it. And I kept thinking of Roger Stone, who went to prison for lying to Congress earlier this week. And I can't help but think if you're Sondland and you've been called to testify before Congress and you're sitting there, that that's got to weigh on you heavily. Like he doesn't want to be in this position, but he really doesn't want to be in prison at the end of the day. And so it felt like he was, you know, he was not, he was careful not to just totally throw the Trump administration under the I mean, he kept, you know, he, he talked about how he was connecting dots, mm -hmm. that Trump hadn't said specifically do this, but he put two and two together. Um, but it still, it felt, it felt, this felt like it was pretty bad for, for Trump today. Is that technical term? <laughs> pretty bad? <laughs> yeah, it's a legal, it's a legal term. It's a legal term, right? right. Pretty bad? Yeah. So the only okay. thing worse than being in front of Congress is being in jail. <laughs> well, that's what it comes down to, right? Yeah. 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 That's well, true. I think that's why today's testimony was so interesting because uh, there's a, you know, the president has been consistent. No quid pro quo. No quid pro quo. And Sondland comes today and says, yes, there was a quid pro quo and everyone knew about it. So I don't know how the Republicans respond to this now because Trump makes their defense so much more difficult. Uh, you can have a real conversation, a real debate about, yes, the president did offer a quid pro quo. It was potentially linked to his political future. Uh, is that impeachable? And, and we may say it's not impeachable. Go back to the Clinton impeachment. He lied under oath, uh, and we still kept him in office. So we might, but I'd rather have that conversation because it feels like it's grounded in something. Um, yeah, uh, where do the Republicans go? So this is, for me, what is interesting. I miss some of Nunez's questioning of Sondland because I had to go teach some of you sitting in front of me. But, um, so you ruined my day. Um, but what, uh, what, what, I, what I saw and what I think is going to continue to happen, because Sondland was very careful to say, when he talks about quid pro quo, it was the connection of a White House meeting mm -hmm. to 2016 and Burisma. Correct. It wasn't about Biden. Biden's name apparently never came up. And it wasn't until afterwards he's like, oh, wait, it's about Biden. And he also says that he doesn't have any direct information about whether the aid was tied to this, but he was putting pieces together. And so this is what I've seen the rest of the day from the Republicans is to say, okay, well, but the president talked about wanting to root out corruption. So wasn't there, there, Burisma is a, corrupt, uh, is a corrupt company and CrowdStrike is something we really need to be looking at. And there is some evidence that Ukraine had something to do with the Trump campaign and digging up dirt. And so when Trump says he wants to go after corruption in Ukraine, and those are what the investigations were, and that was the White House meeting. So that's okay, because it wasn't about Biden and it wasn't about aid. I think those two specific things are probably where they're gonna spend their time. But I think the Democrats, what Schiff has done really well is to just keep reading Sondland's words. There was a quid pro quo and everybody knew about it and everybody was in the loop and he, looped, he talked about Pompeo today, he talked about Pence today, he's widening the circle, he called out Giuliani even further. That's where the Democrats need to stick. The Republicans today, Nunes was like, we want to subpoena Hunter Biden, we want to see all these documents. 
They're going to keep pushing that side. The Democrats are going to keep pushing on this side. And to build to your point, at the end of the day, the Democrats are going to have to decide, do we have enough for, for, to know that the House will impeach him? And if they don't, they need to stop. But if they do, then they have no choice but to keep going. Hi, I'm going to be the other guy, like on the <laughs> other side of this story. <clears throat> All those points you made? Yes. Valid points, in, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that the Republicans made. Um, no, I, I, I mean, realistically, and, and, you know, kind of going between your point and, and Tom's point, this is, this is a political process. It doesn't really have a good formation or, or mold around it. So, yeah. Sondland said specifically he informed the NSC and the State Department through every step of the process, including trying to get the Ukrainians to do a public um, uh, investigation statement. Uh, Giuliani was communicating with the Ukrainians without prior knowledge, um, which he, wow, if he doesn't go to prison after today, it's Giuliani. Good God. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah the, the, the presumed aid, uh, uh, Sondland presumed that the aid was contingent on investigations, but there was no mention throughout the process of letting all of these different people know throughout all of the, uh, uh, the uh, different agencies. Uh, to your point, um, the quid, uh, quid cro, uh, quo pro, wow. That word um, is awful. Yep. Um, was specifically in relation to a White House visit uh, and a statement on the investigations. Um, Sondland didn't see any evidence of Biden specific uh, or demands specific to um, Vice President Biden or his son uh, until the whistleblower, or the, uh, the, the transcript was published. Um, uh, everything was related to uh, Burisma in 2016, um, not the Bidens. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we can talk about the two plus two equals four thing, which if I heard that again one more, it should have just been a drinking game at that point. Um, it was like there, there's, there's nothing we can do about this. We know where this is going, and we've talked about it in the podcast before. I, I can't imagine that the Democrats wouldn't move forward in the impeachment process at this point, and then it's going to fail in the Senate. So unless there is some sort of more legal guardrails on this process, this is a foregone conclusion, in my opinion. Well, it so much depends on how the public responds, though, right? And it's, it's hard to know whether there's Which we've seen that. There's, I mean, I think there's camps on the left and the right that aren't moving, right? But there's still that, that middle section of the public. And, and, and we'll see. We'll see whether they're paying attention and whether it moves the needle one way or the other. I, mean, I think so, timing matters. Yeah, the, that, that, one, one more yeah. thing. Um, we saw the first polls today showing that support for impeachment was starting to go down. Yep. And we were talking about it last week, I think, mm -hmm. to your point, Phil, um, that it would have to get to, what was it, like 65% yeah, something, something like, like that, like that. Yeah. to really kind of move the Republicans in a different yep. direction. We're already starting to see the opposite of that happen, mm -hmm. and we're fairly early in this process. That suggests to me that the will of the American people is not behind this process. So, and in at least one bellwether state, Wisconsin's one where the tide has shifted quite considerably recently against impeachment. So 70% say what they think he did was wrong, uh, but that's a different number than the number that think it's an impeachable offense. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that this is, we, we talk about things being political and it's sort of a throwaway, ah, oh, that's just politics or something like that. And I don't mean to say when I say this is political, not legal, that it is something insignificant. Mm -hmm. This is the constitutional bazooka. And the question is whether it's aimed at something important or not, because it doesn't get any bigger than impeaching the president, uh, period. Hamilton worried about this endlessly. 
I'm a little worried about saying Hamilton before I say Madison, so somebody <laughs> might think, I don't know, podcast <laughs> listeners will know, <laughs> I'm a Madisonian libertarian. Just saying Hamilton makes me a little nervous up here. I'm going to slide a little further stage. away from <laughs> this crowd, right? Yeah, but, but Hamilton said, ultimately, the problem with impeachment is going to be it's driven by public opinion, popular will, and emotion, and that that's going to undermine democracy. And I don't know whether I'm ready to say that's happening now, but at least we ought to say that one of the themes that's, that's going through this, we see things profoundly differently. Both sides are, are interpreting the same facts in profoundly different ways is they're doing it in their gut rather than in their head. I think a lot of people are at least. Mm -hmm. and Which, I was just gonna say, and then their gut is all colored with their partisanship. Yeah. So yeah. then that adds this extra layer of it being political. Yeah. But the, go ahead. Well, so the danger though is like, yes, I, we are consumed by partisanship, but we should still also be able to use these mechanisms at critical moments. Yep. Mm -hmm. And there, this feels to me in particular like one of those moments, but it's hard to do that because of the partisanship, of, of the, right. the anger and the animosity of not being able to see the issue mm -hmm you know, in, in, in a more objective way. Mm -hmm. You know, where Republicans go, I, I started thinking about this kind of as an old trial lawyer. And I thought to myself, they should stop saying anything at all right now and go straight to the Senate. Because there they're going to call witnesses, there they're going to cross-examine, there they're going to present evidence. Um, why prolong a process that the other side controls? Now, I'm, I'm not for one side or the other here, but, but I'm thinking if I was the lawyer, for the president or for the Republicans, my advice would be, I've, I've given this advice on a podcast before, a lawyer should shut his mouth. Mm -hmm. But here's a good time to do it. Temporarily the, shut their uh, mouth. Temporarily <laughs> shut their mouth. But the faster they get to the Senate, the faster they can call witnesses. The faster they've got something that much more closely approximates a legal procedure. This is like discovery. This is an investigation. But boy, when it gets to the Senate, there'll be a level of formality that's very different than the one that there is now. And I think that's where the Republicans, if they were smart, would play their cards. Well, but the longer this process draws out, the better it, to the points we've been talking about, to y'all been talking about, the longer this draws out, actually, the better it could be for Republicans, because if the public approval of impeachment goes down, the longer this process plays out, the more that we see the politics playing out, then it actually could end up being better for them, because the likelihood of him being removed in the Senate, which is already small, is even smaller. Mm -hmm. The longer it goes, the less interested we are. We saw this with the Clinton impeachment. So I could see it from both sides, speed it up or slow it down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. I mean, I've talked, we've talked, I think you and I talked about this today, and you and I have talked about this, that there's an element in which we get focused not on the meat, but on the, this, like, the horse race aspect of it, yeah. which is right. frustrating to me. And I, I'm going to turn to the horse race part of it in just a minute <laughs> after I've said that. Um, but yeah, I mean, so the, yeah, there's this poll. I saw that same poll, which is that the support for impeachment and or support for the impeachment process declined like a percentage point or two. And the opposition had climbed a little bit. Um, it's, so I, it'll be interesting to see if that's a trend, right? If that's what continues, or if this is just kind of a, you know, a little blip. Um, I, another poll I saw showed that Republicans pretty well have their minds made up. Democrats pretty well have their minds made up. But something like 40% of independents said that they, their mind could still be changed. Now, I, I am not, I think those 90% of people who say that their mind cannot be changed, their mind can be changed, right? They change their minds too. But even if 40% of independents say that they're still open to where this goes, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I am, I, you all are fairly certain of where this is going to end up. And I, I think that is obviously the safe bet. But I'm not convinced that it's a sure thing. I think there's no, stuff no. that could happen. Yeah, you look at like the, the way the Nixon impeachment played out, something, you know, who knows what, what will turn 
-hmm. that. And, and I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's, uh, well, and there's some serious wild cards here. Rudy, what is Rudy Giuliani going to say? <laughs> do they get Rudy Giuliani test to testify? No way. Uh, He's never going to do it. <laughs> Oh, that, never say never, right? I mean, uh, if he's so, smart, he'll just go take himself to jail right now and call it a day. Right. <laughs> like, turn yourself in. But so we're getting closer to the administration. And so do, does Pompeo, does uh, does Rudy, do some of these other individuals, these key players around Trump, start feeling the heat? I mean, Sondland changed his testimony uh, or revised it after remembering things because he was afraid of the the legal heat. I mean, Tom, do you think that there is any chance? that the individuals around Trump are starting to worry, like Rudy and others, about their own prospects of staying out of jail, does that, does that push them more towards testifying or? I expect they're worried. I expect they won't testify. I don't think they should, and I don't think the courts will make them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is, these close advisors to the president, uh, I think, are almost certainly protected from testifying. They're his alter ego. And uh, these are co-equal branches of government. And no more can the Congress demand that Rudy Giuliani testify than the President could demand that somebody from Congress come to his office and talk to him about something. Um, so I don't think they're going to testify, uh, they being this close circle, um, which is to say I think while they might feel some level of concern about things they're saying uh, on Twitter and, and that sort of thing, I don't see them going on the record and testifying. I just can't imagine they would, and I can't imagine a court compelling them to do that. But that's one of the uncharted pieces of territory here, right? Sure. We don't know whether they will or not. It, um, I, I promise I'm not just checking my, my text messages. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, 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 kind of going along with what you said, Tom, I think it would be smart for the Republicans to move towards Senate proceedings at this point and, and cut this off and, and have to put guardrails around everything. Because at some point, Politics is, and I, I'm going to say this again, and if you take nothing else from this besides Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, it's that... Um, is that on the agenda? Yeah, no, it's not my agenda. Um, that politics is downstream of culture. And the main driving force in culture right now is the mainstream media. And immediately after Sondland's testimony was done, I went on all of the, the news outlets, and specifically CNN I was looking at, and it was fascinating to see what stories they had on there. Republicans tried to undercut ambassador who testified Ukraine, quid pro quo, came at Trump's, quote, express direction. That's a false assumption in the context that they put it. What exactly is Devin Nunes doing? Not great. It's <laughs> a good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, GOP lawmakers' line of questioning draws laughter. Yes, it did. Right, it did, but in a, a light, you know, he's, there's injecting levity, and it makes it sound like he was just being an idiot. So they're, they're controlling the narrative about how this is shaped. And most people, again, we talked about it, don't have time to watch nine hours of testimony. Yeah, so. Most Americans, frankly, don't give a shit, yeah. or just, just care in general, until they read something or, you know, watch Fox News or CNN or M uh, MSNBC. So someone is giving them the narrative. And the more that these proceedings go on, the less opportunity there is for the Republicans to refute that. And I think, it, it, again, to, to Phil's point, that if there are independents in there, and the only narrative that they have, if they're not watching these proceedings, is the mainstream media or the media in general, that's a, dis that's a disadvantage for the, the opposing viewpoint. Well, I, I was going to ask what you thought, uh, all of you, about 
whether the, this playing out, so this has been going you know, two weeks, the public testimony. My tendency is to think the public testimony is good for Democrats, right? People are exposed to it. You have sound bites, the news clips on the TV, you control the narrative. But is there a point where that drags on and people get you know, bored? I, you know, 20 years ago, I never would have guessed that it was two weeks. Um, but my question, you know, how quickly do we get to that point? Do, are the, is it a smart thing for the Democrats to keep this going through, you know, for another you know, three, four weeks, a month to, to keep it in the news cycle? Or does that eventually, does that backfire at some point? Well, I think some of it depends on, so today, for example, Devin Nunes was saying, we want to subpoena Hunter Biden. We want to see all of these documents. And I was thinking today, like, maybe it makes sense for Schiff to acquiesce. And be like, you know what? You want to change what this is about? Because this isn't about Hunter Biden and Burisma. And if that's what you want to make it about, fine. Then we'll go ahead and we'll subpoena them and we'll see what happens. And then it puts Republicans on the spot where they have to try to build a case for something that has totally been debunked to be true. And then it turns it into the Republican media circus. I think to some extent that's actually a smart strategy for Schiff. But it extends this whole thing. And then maybe that's a bad strategy overall for the end result, which I think Schiff, for example, wants to see the president removed from office, which of course he has no control over as not being in the Senate. So I don't know, part of me thinks that they should just turn it over and let Republicans do whatever they want to do and see if they bury themselves. But it could, again, have some, some negative consequences for the length of the whole thing. And then, of course, we, the first, you know, the first, well, you know better than anyone, the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucus are, what, the middle of February? Mm -hmm. So the longer this goes, and already McConnell is saying that we're probably looking at a trial in the new year. Mm -hmm. So now we're moving into votes being cast. And that is not what the Democrats want to see. So there's all of these political things hanging when, to what all we, we've been saying, particularly Tom, I totally agree, is that we need to be thinking about this as a constitutional issue. And what the, the constitutional bazooka, I love how you said that, that <laughs> there's got to be something there that requires us to do this and to think about what that is. And I agree with you, Bill. I think that there is something there that requires us to happen. And there's different forces at play if you're the Democrats right here, because I think our attention span is just so much shorter now. I mean, the idea of, of a long uh, impeachment inquiry like Nixon or Bill Clinton, the public isn't that engaged. But it was the duration of Nixon that ultimately brought out the evidence mm -hmm. that brought him down, right? So if, you know, in one ways, if you're Adam Schiff, you're thinking like, we need more people talking. There's more of the story to be uncovered. If we keep doing this, we'll finally get that, you know, that big piece of evidence. But if the public loses interest, it's, it's a tight line to, to walk there. You had weeks of closed-door testimony. What else are you going to get at this point? But the, with the Clinton one was years, right? Well, between Whitewater and then starting all this yeah. Mon Monica Lewinsky, he was under investigation basically since he took office, and which Nixon is not was, dissimilar. Nixon was also a... a Very long. Yeah. yeah. So there's not there's precedence for it to be this long because usually there's multiple things that are being investigated. But we have to remember, this is the first time that we've had an impeachment with this type of news. Not just, to, to Nick's point, about the, the amount of sources, the amount of outlets, but also with social media. And part of this is also our short attention span. All of this comes together. And so this is a very different situation in a lot of ways. Nixon didn't tweet through Watergate? He would have, yeah. if he could have. <laughs> Johnson would have done it on the toilet. That's true. That's true. It feels to me like there's a lot of people that are saying, I'm going to just wait and see if they vote articles. Yeah. Because, boy, when this thing gets to the Senate, that's going to be something to watch. Mm -hmm. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is going to officiate. It'll be a totally uh, different feel than Adam Schiff doing it. Uh, it'll have a kind of, um, I mean to say the thing going on now doesn't have gravity, but when you add the Supreme Court Chief Justice, when you add a layer of formality, when the vote about that is either to keep a president in office or not, it changes the stakes. And I have a feeling, I don't, I don't know, when I talk to students in my classes, they're sort of saying, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. 
if he's impeached, then I'm going to start watching when yeah. it gets to the Senate. I think that's how a lot of Americans are. Maybe yeah. they're in that middle independent yeah. ground, you know, mind can be changed, but they're going to wait until the stakes are really high to look. Uh, that, that'll be quite a spectacle. And the Senate does mm -hmm. tend to take things more seriously than the House, right? The Absolutely. House, you know, it enables sort of some silliness and some extremism mm -hmm. that the Senate would care about the institution and the legacy of that institution. Yes, they are. <laughs> we talk about senators as institutional patriots, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this is how we see like the upper versus the lower chamber. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about the deliberative nature of the Senate, how everything is supposed to be slower and the House is supposed mm -hmm. to be faster. All of that is institutionally designed, right? And I think for me, looking forward to the Senate trial, to the point about having these independents, right, is that these individual senators, particularly in Republican senators, in states where they barely won, or maybe the uh, Clinton won the Electoral College in that state, or whatever it is, they need to be doing some really tight polling to see what is going on, especially if they're up for re-election in 2020, because a third of the Senate is up, and already the map is not looking good for Republicans. So once we get to the Senate, these political things become even more important, and then we're in the primary season, and then we see coattails. There's so much when we get to the Senate, which I'm like giddy and super excited about, because <laughs> um, I'm gonna assume it's gonna get there, that I still don't think we're gonna get 67 senators to remove him, but it, we, it may be closer than we think. Not close, but closer. <laughs> well, should we transition? Oh, man. It, yeah. It's time to move to one of my favorite segments, uh, what we call Phil, Phil's Campaign Corner. So for new listeners, our very own Dr. Phil Barker <laughs> just happens to live in New Hampshire. Are we doing speed rounds? Yeah, it's a speed round. Okay. Yeah. You didn't say it was a speed round. Oh, I'm sorry. We're well, moving to speed round. Normally we talk about our beer at this yeah. point. Yeah. My, practice, my beer right. was really disappointing tonight. <laughs> it was lacking. Yeah. We're, all little we're all a little disoriented. Yeah, yeah. This is where you crack the next <laughs> can. So, yeah, so speed round we do, we're going to do four topics, each of them 10 minutes. In a few minutes we'll get a, a little timer up there to keep us on, on tack. So, minutes. yeah, 10 minutes per, per round. Okay. Yeah. That's a long uh, time. Because we've got five people. Oh, yeah. Uh, for new listeners, our very own Dr. Phil Barker just happens to be, he lives in New Hampshire and is a superstar political science professor at Keene State College. And he's had the opportunity, we're really building you up, to interact with presidential candidates when they visit campus for campaign events. Phil has gotten a behind-the-scenes look at nearly all of the presidential candidates and campaigns, and that includes taking a truly amazing photo with a super cranky Bernie Sanders. Um, it's hard to appreciate just how cranky Bernie is in that, but... So, Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience in watching the Democratic primary up close, and then we can transition to a broader discussion of the primary as a whole. It already went away, thankfully. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, so I'm not from New Hampshire originally. Um, I, I thought that, you know, the, the thing that I, I want to kind of bring up that we can sort of jump into a discussion of the primary about, I'm not from New Hampshire. I'm from Texas originally. I was deeply skeptical of the primary process in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a great Place. I really like New Hampshire, but it's not particularly representative. It is incredibly white. It's incre I mean, it's like economically, it's not particularly diverse. Um, and so the idea of a bunch of, you know, little New England, small town New Englanders deciding the future of the country, I, I was very skeptical. And then I went and, and I've gotten to see it. I've been, I've gone to, I don't know, probably a dozen different candidates' events. And I've been incredibly impressed um, at the uh, extent to which people take it very seriously. I mean, they ask rigorous questions, they ask hard questions, they push the candidates, they expect the candidates to know what they're talking about. Um, 
And I've also been impressed or surprised at the extent to which you can learn a lot about a candidate by seeing them in one of these small events. Okay. So beyond the, you know, you, you can find the policy stuff online, but when you see them in person interacting with people and when you see them behind the scenes and how their staff runs things, that it's, it's really, you know, Suzanne and I were talking earlier today about it's a really, it's a nice trial because you have to be well organized. You have to be able to do this for a year and a half. You have to be able to raise money, organize people on the mm -hmm. ground, you know, get people out to events. You've got to do all of it. And so I've been, um, I've been pleasantly surprised by it. I, I like the idea that there is somewhere in this country that does that, that does this kind of mm -hmm. whittling down thing. And then the rest of the country. Now, I, I could be easily convinced that it should be someplace other than New Hampshire. Uh, I hope people listening in New Hampshire forgive me for that. Um, <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been it's been great. And seeing some of the you know the candidates in, in person has been really interesting. The, you know, Kamala Harris is the example that she was one of the first ones who came. And her forgive my language. Her uh, her staff they were just assholes, right? It was just mishandled badly. They were treated people terribly and she's she's done right she's given up on new hampshire she immediately she not immediately she started off well and then it collapsed because and i don't know whether or not you're like nice to people so that brings up the bernie sanders thing right <laughs> like he's not he's not in it to he's not there to the, the contrast between he and elizabeth warren's really interesting because they're very similar in in terms of policy yeah. worlds apart in terms of personality and and i don't know that personality should be the thing that, that decides, but I do think it should matter, and, and that, that comes into play. It'll be interesting to see, you know, Pete Buttigieg, I don't know if you were gonna talk, he's, he's making the search, he's coming to campus in like two weeks, and I'll be interested to see how that, how that goes. See if his people are asking. Right, I'm, I'm skeptical. <laughs> I don't think they will be, but who knows? They're gonna be Indiana yeah. nice. You yeah. were, you were yeah. talking about being excited about what's going on with Buttigieg in Iowa and the significance yeah. of that. So, I'm all about polling. I love me some polling because some polls really suck and I like to find out when they suck. And so this is what I've been looking at lately. There's two polls, one from Iowa, one from New Hampshire, uh, that shows that, so Buttigieg does have a pretty good lead both in Iowa and New Hampshire, but the margins of error in those two polls are pretty high. So now in the, for the Iowa poll, he still would be up by about a point if we look at the margin of, margin of error going on either side. And so I think what's happening, I think there's a couple of things happening. I think one of the reasons he's surging has to do with the way that he handled the debate in October. And so this takes me to Elizabeth Warren and what I think is interesting happening with her. So for anyone that watched the debate or didn't watch the debate, basically what happens is she's seen as the front runner for the first time because she's surging in the polls and then everyone's attacking her on the stage, right? People to judge who's been pretty reserved, he goes in pretty aggressive um, on her and some of the other candidates. And so what happens, this is what political science literature research tells us, is that when a candidate finally starts to get some attention, they're in the discovery period. And so with that discovery period, we start to like them, and then their poll numbers start to go up. But then the media scrutiny happens, and this is what happened with Elizabeth Warren, right? Then it's, how's she gonna pay for the thing? Is she electable? What's going on? And then, huh, funny enough, the poll numbers start to dip. So we see discovery, scrutiny, and then an eventual decline. We've seen this with almost every primary candidate who has not ended up with the nomination. So someone usually rises up, right? Biden just sits there doing what he's doing. Bernie's kind of, you know, grumpy Bernie. He's kind of like coming down. But I think the Buddha judge is interesting here because he just sort of sat and like waited, bided his time and pounced at the right time. And momentum in Iowa, if you get momentum in Iowa, if he wins Iowa, which Obama did, it completely changes the trajectory of his campaign. I think the same thing could happen for Buttigieg. Historically, the candidates who have been in the lead at this point haven't won, right? Uh -huh. This is when, you know, it's Hillary Clinton's way in the lead and then Obama uh -huh. 
surges, and that was the case with Clinton too. Clinton was nowhere was to be seen, terrible. and then and then it, it came. It, she was terrible. It, it, it sur <laughs> surged. Um, so yeah, it'll be the other part that you see in in New Hampshire is how much, and I think this is very true in Iowa too, how much the ground game part matters. Yeah. And when you talk to people who know, Buttigieg has been, he's been quiet, but he is, he's raised a ton of money. He's put together this huge ground camp. He has not been, uh, until the last couple of weeks, hasn't been doing a whole lot of touring, but he, his, his uh, um, proxies have. Like his husband's been on campus, on our campus multiple times already, just meeting with students. So that sort of you know, background, you know, groundwork, I could see it really. Yeah. Now, Elizabeth Warren has a tremendous ground game as well. Yeah. Um, and that's where you know, other people, some people point to that as the key, as who's gonna do well. And that, you know, we've yeah. talked about Cory Booker and how it's surprising that he hasn't done well. People mm -hmm. in the know who I talk to say he has an incredible ground game. Like, so he's not polling well, but there's this expectation that oh. it might, you know, as we get closer and as that starts to kick in, you might see him um, do a little better. Especially in, we look at South Carolina. I think South Carolina is gonna tell us a lot about which candidates are more or less viable. I'm struck by the contrast between New Hampshire and Illinois, where we won't see any of these candidates, <laughs> probably won't see many television commercials even. We're taken for granted. Everybody knows how we'll vote. Uh, so we're not really participants in a meaningful way in the primaries. Bill and I talked about this earlier in the week and thought about a system that might, for example, have four time zone primaries that rotate every year. So central time goes first and then west and back to the east. So that four big days, so there's, mm -hmm. there's a chance for people to rise and fall and respond and, and that sort of thing. But, but this endless state by state Mm -hmm. uh, that, that in many ways makes some of the states completely irrelevant. Uh, it's a terrible way to do this. Texas is the exact same at the opposite end, right? Like right, I was right. so conservative that it mm -hmm. didn't matter. Nobody mm -hmm. came because it, mm -hmm. it was a foregone conclusion that Republicans were gonna win. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, there's an argument, I don't, so, you know, I make the argument that the New Hampshire is, it's nice to have a state that does this. But uh, there's also, like, I, I like the idea of like saying, here's, there's a national primary day. Mm -hmm. We all go vote yeah. on this day. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that would give way to this idea of like a broadly uninformed election as well, and yeah. instead of you know having this process that has to be played mm -hmm. out. But imagine four Super Tuesdays. Yeah. Right, where you have a central time zone on a Tuesday. It's like and the college football later, playoff. It's like yeah, the college you know. football playoff, yeah. right. Yeah. So, so the, the candidates have time to evolve and, and respond to one another and do debates and that sort of thing, but you're not in this, this drip, 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 yeah. drip, torture of, you know, what are people gonna do in New, the, the 14 people that live in New Hampshire? How are they gonna vote? Yeah, What's the little letters. Hobson's point or something like that? You know, yeah. the furthest east, there's, there's 12 people notch. there that vote. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. something notch, yeah. right. Part of the episode, yeah. one of the episodes of Westlane was. They all got in trouble like a year ago because like half of them were not actually living there or something like that, but uh, yeah. yeah. Um, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Nate Silver who said it, that the sample size of the poll from Iowa was about 256 people. Uh, that, I thought it was about 500, but that could be, mm. they, okay. maybe we're looking at two different polls, but even still, it was really small. Yeah. But it was Iowa caucus goers, at least, which sure. is a good population sure. to look at. Yeah. I, um, I, I guess what you were talking about previously in terms of the, the discovery period with, with candidates, I thought in terms of Buttigieg, that ha happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I know Bill and I, mm -hmm. when he, he kind of first him. emerged onto the scene, we were like, he's the guy, he's yeah. gotta be the guy. Like he just, he's charismatic, he's different than everybody else. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, he, he, it just seems like it. And then as time went on, it was like that, that interest faded very, very quickly, especially for me, mm -hmm. um, based on his particular political stances and 
um, statements that he had made. Uh, I, I don't necessarily see this as a, as a discovery phase for him. I think his time is done, yeah. personally. I, I think this, the, the poll is, it's interesting, but I think the, the combination of the data with the time frame uh, of how long he's been around in general doesn't necessarily match up. It, it, again, I keep saying foregone conclusion for a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. I think it's a foregone conclusion. It's Biden or Warren at this point. One thing I would think that, that the Buttigieg and the Cory Booker might have going for themselves is that Obama weighed in this weekend. Uh, and Obama basically said that you don't have to be such an extreme mm -hmm. left candidate. And I think that's important. That's a signal mm -hmm. from the, you know, the, the standard bear Democratic presidential candidate saying, it's time to move to the middle. Now, that, that may not happen. The candidates may continue to, to push left, but I think he's signaling that he would like to see more moderation, and that could play well for Buttigieg, who has said uh, Medicare for all who want it, right? There's a big difference between that. Uh, maybe Cory Booker can seize on some of that middle ground, especially if Biden continues to, to struggle. There, there's going to be some excitement for somebody who is a more moderate voice in the Democratic Party. This, is, this is where we get into the whole like horse race aspect of it, and that people talk about, like, there's all this discussion about who people, who, who pundits and experts think people want, yeah. as opposed to who they actually, so there's this tendency of all these moderate yeah. candidates that parade, you've got, you know, Deval Patrick, and you've got, um, what's his Bloomberg. name, Bloomberg, who, who still think that there's this, mo everyone really wants a moderate. And, and they just haven't found the one they like yet. Yeah. And, then, and then they don't, right? They're still the people who are, and again, when I see the candidates come, the people, the ones who people are excited about are the, you know, the Bernies and the yeah. Elizabeth Warrens. And that's not surprising in a primary. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm not convinced that a moderate's gonna come along and catch fire right. in this Democratic primary. Yeah. Now, but speaking of signaling, Deval Patrick's <laughs> been signaling that Barack Obama might endorse him. Right. Who knows whether that's right. true or not? But wouldn't it be interesting to see whether the endorsement yeah. outdoes the ground game that yeah. everybody, you know, because that would be an enormous stamp of approval yeah. for yeah. somebody running on that side. Yeah. Just well, the, the gong, gong didn't yeah, go didn't off, so we'll, have, we'll move on. It's just gong. like a normal podcast. <laughs> they don't pay attention to the time. All right, so we're gonna, shifting gears to international politics. It's fair to say that it's not been a good week for the Chinese government. The New York Times got its hand on over 400 pages of internal Chinese documents cataloging the government's brutal detention of more than one million Muslims. The documents expose the inner workings of a huge network of detention camps in a resource-rich province near Pakistan and Afghanistan. The documents detail senior Peter, uh, party leaders urging drastic and urgent ac action against uh, what they describe as extreme violence, uh, extremist violence. While China's downplayed the camps as merely restraining centers, or I'm sorry, retraining centers, uh, the leaked documents- Restraining oh, centers yeah, is really like better, it, yeah. Uh, the documents paint a much more chilling picture, and it's now nearly impossible for the government to credibly deny their repressive behavior. When you combine this with the violent crackdown in Hong Kong protesters, we're seeing a very dark side of the regime. Critics from around the world are condemning China and even using terms like concentration camps and genocide. Phil, the gravity of the situation raises the question of how the United States and the international community as a whole should understand and respond to these developments. What's your reaction? Um, so, I, I think the <laughs> I, there's a couple of elements to this. I, there's the part, uh, there's the aspect in which the, these documents are leaking, which is sort of unprecedented for the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. and, and there's stuff to, I don't know, there's all sorts of analysis we can do with that about why that's happening or what's going on that allows that. As far as interpreting the events, I, I, there's not anything that's terribly surprising here. China is, they're, they're not a friend of human rights, right? I mean, this is not, a, this is how they've operated for a long time. They've had these, the, these, the camps for Uyghurs in place for how many years now? I mean, this has been going on for a, for a while. 
Um, and and it's not, I, I mean, there have been reports for a long time of, you know, the Uyghurs are, it's a Muslim minority that forcing them to eat pork, forcing them to, you know, drink alcohol, they're, you know, relocation of people, stuff that by the definition, genocide could be, uh, we could debate the idea of genocide, but if not genocide, crimes against humanity, yeah, yeah. like stuff that is listed as, as a violation of international law that would be, you know, punishable before the International Criminal Court, they're, they're doing that, right? I mean, I think we should call it what it is. But what's interesting is that you have the clash, as oftentimes is the case, between, uh, you know, what is right in international politics and power, right? And this is what comes into place with, you know, why the international community maybe didn't care about Rwanda because there was no interest there. And in this case, it plays out in an opposite way in which the, I, you know, What's happening in Hong Kong and, and with Uyghurs is, is appalling. But mm -hmm. are we going, is, is the world going to risk war with China to stop this? And so, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I go back and forth between feeling like speaking out, saying something is incredibly important to do, and also feeling really kind of deeply depressed that this is mm -hmm. the situation that we're mm -hmm. in. Hey, mm -hmm. I did my part and said that it was bad on Facebook. So <laughs> I don't know what you else I'm supposed to do at this point. Yeah. I'm proud of you. <laughs> The thing that strikes me when I, when I hear these stories is, is for all its flaws, the United States is an important international actor, right? And, and again, we could go through the long list of mistakes that the United States has made internationally, but, but we do promote democracy, we promote human rights, and we're seeing what a world without U.S. leadership starts to look like. And if you, you go out 25 or 50 years, it's entirely possible that China emerges as the global hegemon, and they structure the world international system. And when you look at what they're doing domestically, this is, you know, this is to be expected internationally, and it's, it should be deeply troubling. Um, and I think it's, it's an impetus to think more about the United States reasserting itself globally. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really troubling. Go ahead. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure this is an instance of us not asserting ourselves globally. I think this is a, a completely unique situation that we haven't found ourselves in before. I think that as much as we've promoted democracy, uh, you know, since the end of World War II and the, you know, the advent of the, the globalized economic system that we helped to create, we haven't really had a, a, a challenger that could push back against us. You can talk about the Soviet Union, but it was the, the antithesis of what we were. It was an easy enemy to, mm -hmm. to you know, put a narrative around. The Chinese are, are more complicated. I think that because they are such an economic power, um, and there is an element of democracy, or I, I guess a, a better term would be capitalism, mm -hmm. um, that it's, talking about democracy is cheap. Doing something about it costs a, a significant amount of political capital, which I'm not sure we're willing to do. Well, and that's point. why I think the, the Soviet example is maybe a, a not such a bad example, because there were lots of times where, you know, the Russians march into Poland or march into, you know, Hungary or other, you know, and, and we, you know, should we have done something if we're doing, standing up for right and democracy? Yeah. But, but you know, we'll, we'll intervene in places where democracy is at risk and we can win, right? And other places where we can't, we're, we're not going to push it. But, and, but to Nick's point, the, the third interesting event here is the NBA mm -hmm. and this, this almost total collapse yeah. of, of the willingness to stand for what seems to me to be universally accepted uh, values. Don't let's put people in re-education camps. Uh, is there anyone in America that disagrees with that in their heart? 
but it's when the money's on the, the line that all of a sudden, boy, this is an emerging market, uh, they're huge fans, if we offend, maybe we're not on Chinese television anymore, it is really hard, and, and that should be the easiest part of it. Yeah. Talk about going to war. Right. We won't even. We won't even turn down two million dollars. We yeah. won't even let NBA players tweet about Hong Kong. Right. right. Uh, it, it's embarrassing. But it does. I mean, you know, the United States. It doesn't mean that we have to use military force. I would. I would think no, that's not God, the answer. No. But you're right. There could be. You could set a good example internationally. You could critique them internationally. There's a lot that the United States could do mm -hmm. uh, to set a better example to say that this is unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, just merely calling them out uh, would be important. Mm -hmm. Doesn't this have? I mean, thinking about because I obviously bring it back to domestic politics, thinking about the trade war, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that apparently we're gonna be out of it soon, but no, we're gonna we're still in it, and all this back and forth mm -hmm. with it is that, you know, the Senate passed a resolution yesterday condemning what's going on there. Um, if, you know, President Trump obviously isn't gonna speak out against any of this because he wants to try to maintain a relationship where we can he can get what he wants in terms of the trade deal, but at what cost? At what stake if we think about this globally? Mm -hmm. But that's not where our federal government is interested right now. Mm -hmm. Do we put too much emphasis? On, so I'm gonna. I, I tend to agree with you, right? I think the U.S. leadership, the role of leadership, and you know, I'm the norms guy. I I I, buy, I like all that. But do we put too much emphasis on the U.S.? I mean, if if the rest of the world also isn't getting on board with the you know the, the criticism or the condemnation, then the U.S. can say all they want. Now, someone has to lead the charge, right, to get other people mm -hmm. to, to jump on board. But the U.S. can't do it all on its own either. And so I, I, I think the, the role that the U.S. plays is really important. But uh, it, it also feels like, to some extent, the rest of the world is kind of letting themselves off the hook by saying, well, it's Donald Trump, right? This is the U.S. is different. Oh, man, um, they should like pay us more to do more. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's not the United States does it alone, but you, be, you are the leader, right? Yeah. And I, I think this is why uh, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia is problematic. Yeah. I mean, this embrace of, of Turkey and, and Erdogan is problematic. You set an example to say there should be international standards and we should try to uphold them, even if we're not perfect. Uh, and then that sends a message to China, and then maybe you get others on board. I get the sense that the entire uh, Asian region is looking for U.S. leadership mm -hmm. here. And if the U.S. isn't going to lead, they'll turn to China. Uh, and so this, this seems like a really good opportunity for the United States to stand for something. And if they don't, you know, that moment, that moment passes. Mm -hmm. I remember being on the podcast like within the first year and having this conversation with you guys about, um, maybe it was his first UN meeting, I can't remember what it was, but thinking about like the U.S. on the outside of being in the room where those conversations mm -hmm. happen and what are the long-term consequences of being out of that room, right? I pictured like the next U.S. president like looking through a window like, like knocking, like, can I come in? Will you let me in? And they're like, no, no, we're good. We don't need you anymore. Like, how long until we get to that point where they're like, no, we're good. We don't need you anymore. And I'm not saying we're there, or we'll be there in the next 15 years. But the longer there's that void, the harder it's going to be for us to reassert. And whether we should is another conversation. But just, you know, that's normally what we want to do is be involved in everything. We could talk about, I mean, everybody will fall asleep if we start talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but... Uh, I would. I mean, that was a, that was, that was a, a, a trade deal structured to balance against China. Yep. And then when the United States pulls out, and again, on a bipartisan way, Donald Trump was against it, Hillary Clinton was against it, so Republicans and Democrats both disliked it. Uh, when the United States withdrew, those countries turned to China and said, we'd rather work with the United States, but if we can't work with the United States, we'll work with China. Uh, and I think they're... I think that time is coming where the world will move on. Mm -hmm. And I think it started under Obama and it's continued under Trump. I don't necessarily think that's true. I, I think that as much influence as that they've had, uh, China's had over the past decade or two, 
um, especially in Southeast Asia and Africa, uh, we're starting to see instances where there's been so much Chinese influence um, where they're basically strip mining countries and sending it back to, to China without any sort of uh, you know, feeling towards, uh, again, human rights or you know, economic development in the countries that they're developing, mm -hmm. that you're starting to see pushback against that. Um, I, I think it's more in Southeast Asia that we're seeing that. Vietnam would be kind of the uh, standout of that, which is hilarious. Um, but I'm not sure that the rest, of, we would ever get to a point where the rest of the world would just go, we'd rather work with China because there's economic opportunity. At some point, that's going to flip where, all right, they've gone entirely too far, and we need someone who's going to be a, a balance to that. That's my hopeful thought about it. I don't have any of those, so take note. <laughs> I would hope that would be the case, too. I just, I think leadership matters, and, and I think we're seeing an absence of, of U.S. global leadership. Mm -hmm. It's like a double, a double whammy in some ways. I, I keep, you 27 seconds, seconds I gotta quit, <laughs> hurry. Um, and I'm gonna bring up political scientists. Uh, you know, the, in, in political science, people talk about the idea of the sort of grand bargain after, the, after World War II, in which the U.S. was incredibly powerful, so powerful that it should and, and did make much of the rest of the world really nervous, right? Because we, mm -hmm. we could get away with basically whatever we wanted. But we limited ourselves. We like bound ourselves to these institutions. So basically, you know, the UN and NATO and all, you know, all the IMF and the World Bank, all these different institutions make U.S. power sort of palatable, right? Safe for other people. And it feels like what we've done is basically uh, done away with both pillars of that, right? We've basically said, mm -hmm. screw power. We don't, we don't care about being the world power anymore. And also, these institutions are stupid. So the institutions that we're making you feel okay about our power, we don't care about. And also, we don't, you know, we're going to abandon the power, and the, which is where I feel like there's all this confusion. And it does open the doorway for you know, for a, a, a state like China. And, and I think you're right, Nick, there are gonna be people who are gonna be uncomfortable about working with China, and, and financial incentives might not be enough, but there were a hell of a lot of countries that were uncomfortable about working with the US during their, or the Soviet Union during the Cold War, but did so because, you know, financially they sort of had to. Um, you know, the NBA doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't bode very well for, for people Google doing- Google won't make software to, for the Pentagon, but they will for the Chinese. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm back to this business of where's our courage, because it seems to me a president can say whatever he likes, and, and the Senate can pass a resolution, the UN can condemn, but if they don't see uh, a shared set of values being projected at them from a population over here that says, you've gone beyond the pale, and, and uh, we are not going to play basketball on television for you. We are not going to produce software that helps you surveil your, your own citizens. We are not going to build hardware that makes it even easier to do that because we believe in something. I, the, the, the line that was so striking, I guess, in the Vinman testimony is, uh, you know, it's right to be right kind of thing. What well, is right to be right? Yeah. And, and I, th I think the Chinese see us for what we are. And that is, in some ways, a sort of hollow shell. We can yell about values, but when they push back, well, by God, we'll take that back if it means you're not going to watch the NBA right. or, or you're not going to let us on your internet or you're not going to buy from us. That's what worries me. That's an erosion of something a lot more important, you know, talking about norms and institutions, than, you know, do we like this particular president or did the Senate act fast enough or something like that. that that's a big problem. Speaking of surveilling your own yeah. citizens. This is a perfect transition <laughs> to Big Brother. So, so this is a really interesting topic. Uh, so as we get closer to the 2020 presidential election, political organizations and campaigns are pulling out all the stops, and that includes tracking and using data from our smartphones. 
The Wall Street Journal recently reported that political organizations are gathering data from individuals who show up to certain locations. The strategy is called geofencing and involves the collection of smartphone data as users enter a particular geographic we, location. We did that tonight, right? Yeah, everybody's, yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah. all on the list, yeah. You'll be getting emails. Uh, <laughs> the technology is fairly simple. When a user enters a geofence location, the company collecting the data can ping their phones and get an ID number. Campaign officials can then use this information to determine who to target with a phone call or Facebook ad. At a Trump rally, a uh, Trump rally could be used to gather information about thousands of potential voters. But it's not just political events. A smartphone user goes to church or visits a gun club could also be an ideal candidate for a particular political ad aimed at getting an individual to vote for Trump. We've known uh, this has been going on with our consumer purchases, but tracking and targeting voters is something very new. Tom, I know this is something that you're particularly troubled by, so why don't you start us off? Here's an equation. Uh, in absolutely unprecedented capacity to gather data and crunch it and know something because of it, plus an almost total absence of regulation with respect to what we do with that data and how we collect it equals an Orwellian disaster. Uh, I, the idea that uh, we have put ourselves in a position where, uh, let's start with this, a geofence uh, is small enough that the five of us on the stage are in it and those of you in the front row aren't. Amazon uses geofencing, and it's a way of making sure the package is on your front porch rather than your back porch. So the degree to which you can identify where a person is, what they're doing, and then pair that with uh, demographic data like their name, their address, their phone number, uh, this should really alarm people. Now, no one on this stage is going to take me for the guy that wants more regulation. I'm opposed <laughs> to it under almost all circumstances. but. What about regulation that educates? What about something that put us in a position where we knew what our phones did in, in a much better way? The idea that uh, political campaigns know whether or not you're at your psychiatrist this week, how many times you've been to your doctor, uh, these things, it seems to me, we should own. Uh, I, I'll, just, I'll just say one more thing. Some of you know the Supreme Court decided a case involving cell phones a couple of years ago called Carpenter. And in it, they said you've got a thing in your pocket that is, in human history, completely unprecedented. And the court took the position that because of that, it should get a higher level of protection. But quietly, in a concurring opinion, Justice Gorsuch said something that it seems to me we're going to come back to, I'd love to hear the group's thought, that this is property. So what the court decided the case on was this business of reasonable expectation of privacy. What's on my phone ought to be a thing that I've got a reasonable expectation of privacy to. Sort of Fourth Amendment language. But what Gorsuch said was, we need to go beyond that. Gorsuch being, uh, he's my latest crush on the Supreme Court. It was Justice Sotomayor for a while. I kind of still dig her. She's totally protective of, of uh, rights. But, but Gorsuch is the libertarian on the court. And Gorsuch is saying the best way to undermine civil liberties is to undermine privacy. And the best way to protect privacy is to turn these things into property rights that you can either monetize or protect in a profoundly different way than just saying, what do you expect is private and what do you think isn't? So I think this is a big deal. Less because it might cull unregistered voters and more because uh, it erodes human dignity. I mean, do you want a campaign calling you as one of them did because they know who's Catholic and who's not? It's part of the article, right? Uh, it, it's terrifying to me. And how specific they can get. Like you said, mm -hmm. they can follow individuals and then target those ads based on mm -hmm. where you've gone. Mm -hmm. So individuals are getting different ads. It is from a 
you know, a campaign side, this is, you have to be drooling over getting this kind of data. But from a personal side, it's deeply troubling. So, this is gonna be unpopular, probably. <laughs> as, a, as a human person, <laughs> Good Which is exactly That's really unpopular. It's really, exactly. really smart, you guys. It's exactly how a human person would say that. <laughs> I'm troubled for all the reasons that Tom describes, right? As somebody who studies campaigns, this is not that much further from what campaigns have already been doing, right? So to Bill's point about campaigns are drooling over it, yeah, because they can nano-target <laughs> Am I a human person? A little more precisely. The Russians didn't like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> Giuliani. Um, they can, can, they can nano-target a little more precisely, but I don't know that it gives them that much more information than they already had for that. Now, it doesn't mean we should be concerned about the issues that Tom brought up, because I think that those are things we should talk about. I just still don't, I, I really don't think that campaigns are going to get that much more leverage out of this because they're already doing all the things that we don't even know about. The ease with which they can do it, the economy with which they can do it, mm -hmm. and the precision with which they can do it is different than it seems to me the current approaches uh, offer. Uh, think, uh, this is part of a bigger puzzle. Google created a partnership this week where they've gotten uh, health records, records or access yeah. to health records for over a million people from 21 states. Uh, they say that this is for benevolent purposes. And They're going to grind this data down. They're going to help us be healthier and happier and, and, and flourish. And have all this movement yeah. data yeah. on all the people tied to it but, as well. But in yeah. a universe where Google knows where you are, and Google knows who your doctor is, and Google knows where you go to church, and whether you go to the gym, and did you go to a gun club, and are you one of those loony libertarians, they've also got access to this enormous trove of data that they promise to use well but where there's very, again, very little regulation. Um, so I, this does, it, it does feel so, quantitatively different to me yeah. uh, than what we can do now, but, but maybe I'm so, wrong about that. No, I don't, think you're, I don't think you're wrong in the way you just described it because there are very nefarious things that can be mm -hmm. done. My point was simply that with what campaigns can do with it is not that much different from the data that they already have. What, yeah. So back to what you said at the beginning, which is to go further and talk about this as pri like property. What, like, what would that look like when you say to you know to give you? Uh, yeah, what would be? Would that mean that you have con like you have you control of your data? You get to sell it if you want. Yeah, but you nobody own has it. access to it. So people have talked, for example, about data collectives. That is to say, if if uh, Google wants access to all of the information relative to 18 to 25 year olds, I get a cut. So when they buy my address, my phone number, my religion, my health records, and all of those sorts of things that might have been aggregated, the property approach says, uh, I, have a, I have an economic interest in this, and you can monetize it. God knows Google, Facebook, and those companies have monetized it already. They're selling this stuff to one another as we speak. Uh, you know, the article talked at great length about companies that exist to do nothing other than figure out how this data all fits together and then sell it to campaigns. So we've already figured out what it's worth. What we haven't done is figure out who owns it and why we shouldn't uh, uh, allow other people to own our data. 
The no, in, in New Hampshire, the number of, and I know this is like, I don't, this, some of this is just campaign sharing and stuff, not, but the number of texts that, mm -hmm. and phone calls I get, but texts mm -hmm. where they, you know, hi mm -hmm. Phil, they know mm -hmm. who I am. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not mm -hmm. from, you know, I haven't given my name mm -hmm. or number to a single campaign, but mm -hmm. all the campaigns mm -hmm. have my information. They text me, mm -hmm. you know, when, when the person's going to be there and how. And, and you were geofenced. I, something, I don't know. Well, data scientists <laughs> took this Google information to figure out could they find out who the people are that are behind these anonymous numbers? The answer was they figured out a huge percentage of the names and addresses that yeah. went with the health records that are supposed to be anonymous. There's so much information out there that this isn't a, a difficult thing to do. Uh, now, I, I hesitate to say this, but everybody at the Kavanaugh House, my kids and my wife, think I'm going to be in a foil hat soon. But uh, I, you know what? I am. And if you put yours on, we'll all be better off for it because Google won't know where any of us are. <laughs> Nick, you wanted to weigh in. Us two with faces for radio and in foil hats. That's going to be the next time live. No, I, I I, uh, I think you guys are both right. I, 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 there has never been a time in my life where I didn't think a political campaign was trying to garner as much information on me as is physically possible. And I've been part of it, too. Um, and the, the other part of this is that this is all being perpetrated by unaccountable companies that completely obfuscate how they operate, you know, put their, their legal proceedings behind, you know, massive... Uh, What's the thing that you click user on? Agreements. User agreements. Why can't I remember See, I that? I do one tech thing more than you. Thank you. I appreciate that, Bill. <laughs> um, it's it's a severe problem, and like I, I've I've been there since the God. I really don't want to age myself. Um, since the inception of these companies, and originally they were fairly innocuous, and now they have access to all this information, which we tacitly agreed to, but didn't really agree to it. Um, and there's no recourse to it. We talk about, or you talk about, Tom, that you know we this, sh this should be a legal matter. This should be taken to the Supreme Court. I think they have enough power where they can stop that from happening to begin with. I personally think they need to be broken up at this point. They have too much power. This is why you're an Elizabeth Warren supporter. Yeah, that's right? it. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there are a few things that I agree with her or or Bernie or any of the candidates on from the Democratic field, but this is one that I feel really, really strongly about. They're, they're entirely too powerful. If you want to see the future of this, you look at China right now, who is, mm -hmm. is already getting all this data, and they don't have those freedoms. Culture to points. Back. Yeah, oh, that's right. and, mm -hmm. and China argues it's solving problems, it's working with traffic, but it is also used for, for nefarious purposes. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a big deal. When I teach the privacy class, we open up our phones, we go to mylife.com, and we all get our social credit score. Yes. It takes about 30 seconds, and, and what you get is a number that reflects your creditworthiness, uh, criminal it, records. It, your yeah. criminal records, all of this stuff that can be instantly aggregated online. Is it public? Absolutely. Uh, is it something we should all have access to? Maybe. Should we break up these companies? False. Stop <laughs> it. Please. Uh, um, that's, that's, there's the economic bazooka. How about, well, um, uh, what's, what's doing this for all of us there's is the we're, gong. we're broadcasting with our apps as much as our RFID numbers. So, so you've got apps all over your phone that you've not read the terms, and I haven't either, please don't hear me preaching about it, uh, that broadcast this information back and then it's sold. I don't think we have to break up companies. I think we have to make consumers smart about what these things do well, and, compel these, and compel right. these companies <laughs> to make it easy to opt out. And the easiest way to do that is monetize the information they're selling about you.
maybe they get richer doing that, but you might too, and you'd have a greater level of uh, control over it. That's a good way to end. All right, so for our final topic, we're going to end on a lighter note and play a game. Our regular listeners will know that this is a very common, uh, common occurrence on the podcast. Today we're going to play a game, a new game called What's More Problematic? We like the term problematic on the podcast. Uh, it's a game where I'll present two recent events. Deeply. Deeply, deeply problematic. Slippery slope. Yes. <laughs> two recent events, and each of our guests will have to determine which event is more deeply problematic. So event number one, last week three Indiana uh, County Circuit Court judges were suspended after getting into a fist fight outside of White Castle that ended with two of the judges getting shot. The judges were attending a judicial conference in Indianapolis and at around 3 a.m., nothing ever good happens at 3 a.m. At a White Castle. Right, the jurors were walking <laughs> to a White Castle after an evening of drinking when a car passed and an individual in the car shouted something at the three judges. One of the judges extended her middle finger in response and a brawl soon erupted. At one point, uh, one of the judges was holding an individual from the car on the ground while the other judge was kicking him in the back. Like the Brown Steelers game. Yes, that's right, yeah. At which point the guy getting kicked in the back pulled out a gun and shot the two judges, one in the abdomen and the other in the chest. Both needed emergent surgery, but lived. Um, event number no one. No harm done. No harm done, <laughs> yes. <laughs> event number two. Our second event take us to, takes us to Alabama, where a few weeks back a man named Hoyt Hutchinson was charged with criminal mischief after slashing the infamous baby Trump balloon at the Alabama LSU game. The balloon measures over 20 feet tall and was left with an eight foot long gash at its backside. Hutchinson said he was responding to a higher duty. After the arrest, he called into the Rick and Bubba show and stated, <laughs> quote, it comes a point when you gotta take a stand. We don't Amen. have two parties anymore. We have good versus evil. Hutchinson went on to note, went on to note I'm not young, but I'm not old. I'm kind of middle-aged. <laughs> like you, I, <laughs> like you right, Bill. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people my age don't keep up with the news and politics like they should. Should. So I ask you all, what's more problematic? Uh, let's, Suzanne, why don't you start us off and we'll work this <laughs> Okay, the visual of like the judges at 3 a.m. at the White Castle. I didn't know they didn't have their robes on, but in my mind they did. Right, and so I just, I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, the judges at White Castle is much more problematic. It's wrong. It's wrong. wrong. <laughs> I mean, how are people wrong. getting? How are people getting shot outside of a White Castle at 3 a.m. by a judges holding? How is that not worse than you know the fucking Trump balloon? Like okay. I don't get it. Good point. Right. Nick, right. Nick, what's more problematic? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. <sighs> Now I'm going back and forth on this one. <laughs> I thought it was obvious. Is it not obvious? No. It's judges. No. Um, I just, I think these, they're just dumb individuals. Like, I just, ah. All, all of them. All of them. Collectively. Yeah. Collectively. It's just dumb people. Um, I, I gotta go with number two. And not necessarily because. Baby Trump slasher. Baby Trump Baby slasher. Trump slasher. They're, they're playing down Aragon <laughs> in the city, by the way. Um, it's, <laughs> Um, I, I, not necessarily because of this particular person, but more about what is happening to our society in terms of political polarization and kind of cultural separation and our inability to see what the other side, their, their primary points are, are something other than the narrative that's being presented, uh, again, in the media, social media, whatever you want to talk about. Um, it's, 
it's scary. Like, you know, you, you have this, you have people getting bear mace going to, to Trump rallies and varying degrees of, of aggression uh, and attacks back and forth. And it seems to be escalating. Um, and I'm not really sure how or when we would come back from that. So we've got a vote for each so far. I don't believe, Bill? I don't agree with you. Uh, yeah, I mean, who among us hasn't shot a judge <laughs> at a White Castle at 3 a.m.? You shot a sheriff. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, so I, <laughs> they're both problematic. Um, I, I, I'm going to vote for number two, like uh, mostly for the reasons that Nick lays out. So you've got, uh, well, first of all, it's, this is happening in Alabama. That's problematic in and of itself. Um, the fact that there's a Rick and Bubba show is also problematic. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something about the, the idea of someone's making a statement that he doesn't like, and so he's, you know, lashing out against it, but also the statements that go along with that, which he talks about, about, uh, what, what was it? Uh, good versus, anytime we start talking about good versus evil, <laughs> that just makes me, like, uh, you know, I, I, there is good and there is evil, but most things are of this really complex, you know, in the, in the middle, and, and the, that sort of, you know, when you start dismissing the other side as evil, um, there's no communication or conversation to be had. So that, that element of it is, is what makes me uncomfortable. All right, two to one? Two to one. Billy sets me up because he thinks I'm going to say it's always problematic when people shoot judges or lawyers. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Uh, here's what's problematic, and I hope none of you in this room are part of the crowd that did this. At last count, the guy that cut up the Trump thing got $43,000 on his GoFundMe page mm. uh, to fund his defense when he goes to trial for this. That that's problematic, <laughs> that there are people trolling GoFundMe to figure out how to put money in a legal defense fund for Hoyt Hutchinson, who cut up a, a blimp, right? That's the problematic yeah. dimension if, if, here, Bill. If, if he listened to you, he would know not to call into a radio show <laughs> to talk Correct. about, to talk about exactly. his legal trouble. Hoyt's going to stand up to the Chinese, though, because he knows what's right. That's true. That's right. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. What's your, what's, your, what's your vote? No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's absolutely... It's, absolutely it's three to one. Slasher. It doesn't matter yeah. how he votes. <laughs> yeah. And here's, here's what I would say. So, uh, so I, for all the reasons you guys have cited, but also, so uh, my kids and I, we were out in D.C. for, for uh, Donald Trump's 4th of July celebration this year, and baby Trump protest balloon was there. And it was a really fascinating moment because you had both sides there, but the balloon itself led to some really good conversations. There were the people around that were protesting, but also some of Trump supporters came up and had conversations with those people, right? And it felt like that's sort of democracy, right? That's a, that's a good thing. I was happy to see that. There were no fist fights. No, nobody was kicking judges. Kicking so judges. That's more problematic no, then. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Kicking judges at, at, a, at a White Castle at 3 a.m. That's classic politics. That's happened all throughout time. Right? <laughs> exactly. This you know, slashing baby Trump balloon <laughs> is extraordinary, and we should we should oppose it. And I'm absolutely right. The fundraising people are donating to him, I think, is also deeply problematic. Deep, so. Deeply problematic. Y'all are deeply yeah. problematic. All right. Well, this is great. All right, we're going to do some questions. So if people are interested, we'll pull the mic out here. And if anybody wants to come up and ask a question, uh, we'll, we'll do that for a while. So, uh, Mata. There we go. A question. Nice. <laughs> All right. Um, so I want to go back and talk a little bit about how we are talking the attention span with the impeachment hearing is so short. Do we think that's because it's an international issue, whereas with Nixon and Clinton, it was a domestic issue, spying on the other party, the affair. 
So yeah. Americans care about domestic issues more than foreign events, and is that why we don't care for more than a week? That's a great Ooh, question. That is a good, yeah. Yeah. Is a good I mean, you get, so I, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, yes, there's lots of evidence that Americans just don't care about foreign policy issues. I, I think that's like a, I would, I don't know, I would say that that's like a compounding fa you know, mm -hmm. factor that, mm -hmm. that they largely, I would like to, uh, you, you could give the American people credit and say yeah. that, I know, right? <laughs> Wait, let me, finish, let me finish my sentence. You could give the American people credit and say that uh, because it's a foreign policy issue, they believe that the president has greater leeway and can do whatever, and so it's less of an issue. But that's not what's happening, right? It's, I, I think you're right, they're just less concerned. I, I don't think that, I think that if it were a domestic issue, in, this, in the state that we're in, I still think people wouldn't be that concerned. I don't, what do you so think? I think, it's, I think it's a combination, Eric, it's a good question. I think it's a combination of where we are with partisanship and polarization, which is always the answer. <clears throat> but the second part of it is that this is a really complicated right. issue, mm -hmm. right? The moving parts, for those of us who pay attention and know, just following those moving parts is right. really, really challenging. And you get lost in all those details. So I think if it was a foreign poli policy issue that was easier to understand, yeah or if it was a domestic policy issue that was really difficult. I think we may be kind of in the mm. same spot. But we, have mm -hmm. a, we have a foreign policy issue that is also really complicated, and we have the partisanship. I think all around, it's, I think it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Totally agree. The one thing I might p point out is that the Mueller investigation, and the Mueller, it was even more complicated, right? And I think that, was, that also was part of the downfall there. It was, it's, it's hard for the American public. Nobody's going to read a 400-page report. And the Ukraine thing, at its at its most basic, is kind of simple. But then you move it, put in all these other parts, and it does get difficult to keep everything straight. Well, even mm -hmm. just while we're sitting here, unless it's over, the mm -hmm. the uh, there's testimony going on, someone from the Department of State, and Department of Defense, and they were talking about the Impoundments Act of 1974, and when you certify aid, and when it goes out, and how, which I find fascinating. But that's me. That's another layer of like, okay, now who understands how foreign aid gets certified and doled out? It's just, it's a lot of complicated mm -hmm. parts. Yes. Yeah. And when you think about the Nixon impeachment, there weren't as many things drawing on our attention, right? right? There were five big network TV stations. It was a, it was a different media environment, a different uh, sort of lifestyle. And you didn't have a cell phone that was pinging you with texts every minute about it. It's a wonderful question. Uh, and, and there's so many different ways that this feels really different, and, and that's got to be part of it, yeah. Yeah? yeah? Ukraine? Where's that? Yeah. 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 Is that country? Yeah. Who lives there? Yeah. More people than live in New Hampshire. <laughs> Not dramatically more, but more people than yeah. Just where you put armies yeah. at risk. I don't think it's a real place. Yesterday, yeah. people, Congress people were calling it the Ukraine. Yeah. Like, that, yeah. there's no, it's not the Ohio State University. Right. Like, it's just <laughs> Ukraine. Nice. There's the Ohio listeners. That was for the Ohio listeners. Another question. Yeah, so I have a, which is more problematic. I love it. Um, nice. So which is more problematic, the people donating the, what did you say, 43000 to the GoFundMe page uh, after slashing baby Trump, or President Trump saying that he would pay the legal proceedings after, like, Fayetteville with Quick Draw McGraw and those things? Oh, I mean, the latter. I, oh, can we all agree on that one, I hope? No, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Right. I was going to say the same thing. Tell us what side you're taking. <laughs> That's usually me and Phil. Whatever side he takes, I'm on the other one. No, I suspect that we're on the same side on this one. So you go ahead. Thank you, Zach, for the question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when the President of the United States is, or excuse me, candidate, is 
actively advocating for people at his rally to be violent and then saying, oh, and if you are, not only will I not kick you out, but I'll make sure that you're cleared. That is way more problematic than people who think it's like funny to like, oh, the guy that slashed the Trump balloon, we'll give him a couple of dollars. So. He's, he's entitled to a legal defense. He can have a public defender, right, Tom? <laughs> right. I don't know. You might be making judgments about Hoyt that are inappropriate here. We don't know that he's not a wealthy a individual point. who can afford his I own private attorney. I just presumed at the very basic level he yes. had a yes. public defender. He will be represented yes. one way or the other. We don't. Again, we it's don't. Fair to say. It's true. We don't know the demographics of the Rick and Bubba show. <laughs> <laughs> or its guests. Right. <laughs> haven't found our GoFundMe page, please do that. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. yeah that guy's making money. We should be all right. We should be doing this too, yeah. yeah. Are there any other questions? Well, if not, I'd like oh, to thank you. Oh, 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 what are you doing? So, uh, circling back to the whole China thing, uh, we've got companies, American companies, bowing down to China's will out of fear uh, that their bottom lines might be hurt. Uh, Google, Activision Blizzard, uh, mm -hmm. And the uh, well, missing NBA, yeah. So, uh, can the American government do anything, and should it? No. Great question. Do you want to lead off, Tom, or uh, I, I'll, the second question first? Uh, should they? No. I, I don't think you can legislate values, uh, and and to the extent the effort would be uh, to to sort of say, uh, stop selling in that direction, or or stop advertising. Um, that would, you know, but this is the libertarian, absolutely not. Um, I'm not even sure they could. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to look out there and see where you went. Uh, I'm not sure what that would look like. Uh, stopping trade with China or penalizing it or taxing it. Um, I suppose uh, a, 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 some sort of private effort. Uh, listen, divestment worked in South Africa, uh, and, and one wonders if we could galvanize people in the United States to act similarly toward China uh, uh, to, to free people there. But I'm, I, for my own view, uh, I, I would not like to see government involved in trying to push companies one way or the other in that way. I think there's a burden that falls on the companies. Like the, the mm -hmm. NBA it just is, has been shamed by how they yeah. handled this. Yeah. I also think that we bear some responsibility Absolutely. in this, right? I mean, if, if NBA fans had pushed back against the NBA mm -hmm. to say, this isn't the league we support, mm -hmm. the NBA suddenly would have found some courage. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of responsibility to go around. There's a weird contrast here where we're talking about how evil multinational corporations are earlier and how they'll take all of our you know, information and use it against us. And, but, but now we're saying that like, it's up to us to stand up for them. Uh, like I, it feels like we've established that us standing up for ourselves doesn't work in these situations for the most part. But where we spend um, our money does, right? If the NBA sure. thought they were losing money, right? But this is a right, right. But I, if we're just gonna, we don't think that hey, multinational corporations, whatever is the best for the bottom dollar, we're gonna let you do. We regulate behavior a lot of times about you know whether it's the environment or whether it's labor laws or all sorts of other things that we say you can't just do the thing that is best for the bottom for the for your bottom line, right? There are expectations that you are in some way a societal player. Like I, I don't, you, I, this is where well, you and I disagree. Like? So so. Federal statute. Until China lets the Uyghurs go, you can't sell video right. games there. No, I, ha I haven't. No, I haven't. I don't know. I have to think about what that would look like. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm less. I'm more willing to say we do legislate values, right? We, we legislate know you're values more all the to time. Say, well, legislate. <laughs> no. I, 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 Realistically, what? if. if 
if the trade war was contingent, at least in part, on releasing the Uyghurs or, you know, stop stealing intellectual property or stop currency manip manipulation, I would be more behind that, <laughs> you know, compared to the reasons that we've given previously. Mm -hmm. That seems like a, a win but where you can- that's government to government, not uh, government versus Google, Apple, Activision. Uh, that feels different to me. This is, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that there's still, there's an element of cultural norms and democratic principles and an understanding of who we are as a country that kind of filters into those things, especially in terms of concentration camps and, and you know, religious minority groups that are, are being uh, oppressed. I, I think that mm -hmm. that is a, a better narrative for the American yeah. people who realistically probably, probably don't even know how much of an influence that the NBA uh, has in China mm -hmm. or, you know, entertainment companies have uh, in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that is a much more direct path to getting people involved. Nick, you've said cultural norms twice tonight. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, you're departing from your usual curmudgeonly yeah, just self about norms and culture. I'm rubbing off on It's yeah. taken three years, no, but I finally rubbed off a little bit on norms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will never say that. No, yeah, I certainly do. Another question. So my question is throwing back to impeachment. So already brought up that um, if the Senate trial isn't going to happen until sometime next year and that all senators have to go, and be present at this trial, what's that impact gonna have on the Democratic you know, contenders to provide that majority of our senators and will mm -hmm. have to be there and be quiet, mainly, mm -hmm. during all these proceedings? When Taryn turns listening. Um, so actually, this came up on an episode I was on a couple of weeks ago, because this is, a, to me, one of the most interesting things is that the expectation, of course, is every senator is present, and as they should be present for something that's this important. And so I see it two ways. One, to your point about how quiet they would be, how that could elevate candidates who are still on the campaign trail who don't have to be back there to do the work. But I think on the other hand, you look at those senators that go back and do this weighty thing can say like, look at what I'm doing and look at how serious I'm taking this and look at how important I am and look at, you know, I think there may be something that's valuable for them because how do you compare that to, no offense to y'all's favorite mayor, Pete, who's like literally the mayor of a teeny tiny town, no offense to South Bend listeners. And then you have people that are deciding whether the president should be removed from office. You think about uh, importance and experience. I think that there might be even something more valuable for those senators to go do that than to be on the trail. That's my take. Teaser for tomorrow. Uh, when we do our live show from the brewery, we're gonna talk about whether or not senators who are running should recuse themselves from the vote. Uh, this is the, sort of my question for tomorrow, and I think the answer is they absolutely listen. should, <laughs> categorically should. But it's not a legal process, it's a political process. All the more reason. <laughs> but we're going to get into that I look tomorrow. forward to fighting you with you about this. We're going to have it out. <laughs> nice. It's a great question, though. Yeah, yeah great, thank, great. You. thank you. Any other questions? Um, so recently, uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, some billionaires like Michael Bloomberg and Bill Gates have been kind of feuding uh, on TV and ads, um, either subtly or overtly. Um, do you think that Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren's recent um, feuds with the billionaires is hurting or harming the Democratic Party, given how much importance money has in elections? So I, I mean, I'll let you no, answer in a no, second, but I, my, my first thought as you started talking about it was it, it's the best unpaid advertising that Elizabeth Warren could ask for. I think it's like perfect for her. I, in the larger sense of what that does for the Democratic Party, I don't know. I tend to think that in this 
context, I don't, I don't see that that is, as being hurtful, harmful. I think that's a, that's a, I mean, that's, it's sort of the, the anti-billionaire thing is, is what even Trump was running on, right? This sort of anti-elitist kind of populist sentiment. I, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, now, whether it affects fundraising and how that plays out I, is an interesting yeah. aspect. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think, Phil, I think you're right. I think that this plays exactly into what the party's trying to do, which is be the party of like the little guy. I hate that term, but like be the party of the little guy again. Like the little guy's voice was lost, so we're gonna be that party. So not taking money from super PACs and big banks and big pharma and all of that. So I think it plays well into that narrative, and especially for Elizabeth Warren, because she's the most outspoken about her candidacy being against all of that. I, I wonder if though, to the question about whether it affects fundraising, I don't know. I don't know that it will because these billionaires have so much to throw around that they're going to give money to anyone that they think could possibly win, so they have access, even if it's someone who's railing against them. Um, so I don't know. I don't. It may. It may make sense for them to push back rhetorically a little bit, but I think they can still give money. What? The? <laughs> it's, it's China. Um, <laughs> I, I think she's picking the fight with with the wrong people. I, I think Bill Gates is, there are plenty of billionaires who you could, or, or companies in general, large corporations, that you could say, you know, have not paid their fair share and, and need to do more, but his foundation has done a tremendous amount in terms of medical research and, and um, you know, fundraising uh, programs in Africa, lots of different things. Um, and I, I, I think she, she just chose the wrong person. Um, Bloomberg, he's just an ass. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think we've we've gone to a, a point in this political process in the Democratic primary where we've gone beyond the 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 standard narratives of you know it's it's little guy versus big corporations. You know we we need to level the playing field, and we're starting to get to that point where people are getting more engaged in the process and go, okay, we need to kind of temper our expectations a little bit and, you know, go back a, towards the middle slightly. Um, and this seems like a, a flail to me in, in the wrong direction. So as much as I think it could be good advertising in some situations, to your point, Phil, um, I think the timing is really, really bad. To, to be fair to her, she didn't pick the fight, though. She, I mean, she put the plan out, which said that you know billionaires are going to get taxed a lot. And he was the one who, so Bill Gates in this example, in an interview said something about, if you take 100 billion of my dollars, right, I get concerned. And people pointed out that she, she, he wouldn't pay anywhere near that amount. And even if they took 100 billion of his dollars, he would still have 100 billion dollars, right? <laughs> so it's like one of those things where it's, you know, she's, she's basically putting out plans. And, and you can, you know, we can, it's not that you don't have to agree with her plans. You can think they're too high of a taxation, but it's the, it's the billionaires who have lashed out at her, who have attacked her. She's not the one who's gone out and said, I'm coming for you, Bill Gates, right? I just want to hear her say that. <laughs> just to be very Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good, good question. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, everybody, for yeah. showing up, and uh, we would love to do it again sometime. <laughs>